<laughs> Charles oh, will be a fine uh, thing. Okay, sorry, I've hit record. Right. Okay. So anyway, thanks for doing this, no this Ben. Um, you know, this is this is maybe I, I don't really know, but this may be part of a series of me talking to people who I think are doing some good stuff in there, and particularly in the time of coronavirus and might have some lessons for us when, when we come out of it. But, you know, like me, you're one of the people who's been doing this kind of thing for a very long time. Um, yeah, it feels so, weird, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think all of us are trying to pursue some some sort of way of, I suppose, trying to make a living while doing things that are useful to society. And it doesn't always necessarily work out. Yeah, um, it seems quite fanciful, really, when you, you put it like that. <laughs> but, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, what I'd like to do is try to just try and explore how you got to where you are today. So tell me, just tell me just a little bit about your background and where it all started. OK, well, background of Solidaritech or the background of me? Well, let's, let's start with you. OK, all right. Um, I, I guess really um, one thing always informs another. Um, so, yeah, let's go back to the, the very start on this. Um, I grew up in London, um, a child of the 70s, grew up in the 80s. And um, essentially, you know, the 80s was that that time of this sort of new, bold future of technology and computers. Um, my my mum was a single parent and worked two jobs, three jobs in some cases to keep a roof over her head, food over a table uh, on our table. Um, and I guess as well, she had a really big um, interest in making sure that I could use computers. Um, so I remember as a very young lad getting, um, I don't know, I about six or seven, getting a um, Commodore 64, which, you know, just seemed fantastical at the time. Um, I, you know, I, I typed in games from, from magazines and did a bit of basic coding and all of that kind of stuff, but I'd never considered myself a coder, but um, always been kind of fascinated with technology. Um and I guess fast forward a little bit. Um, I wasn't the best kid in school. and wasn't the worst, but I was one of them. And um, essentially, I didn't really get on at school very well. Um, and I guess from that came the, the, the fact that I was, you know, kind of um, spending quite a lot of time just in, enjoying the world, really, and, and sort of learning at my own pace on stuff. Um, and, you know, after a few bar jobs and a few dead-end service industry sort of clerk stuff, you know, Burger King, Quasar, all of these sort of things that you'd um, you'd probably expect a teenage kid to be doing in the nineties. Um, I I kind of <laughs> I thought actually let, let's try and get a job, and actually weirdly enough found out that that the, my ability to use this computer was in something of a demand. So kind of lucked into working in the city of London. Um, didn't particularly enjoy working in the city of London. It was a very uh, soul destroying place, and the only thing that really kept me I guess sane in the whole the whole situation was was reading anything and everything I could get on um, on the subject. So I read a lot of you know kind of wealth of nations, das Kapital, you know every, everything on the subject of capital and the way it worked. Um, I think it was before free economics came out, but that kind of you know yeah. sort of crazy stuff was there. But um, weirdly enough, the the Robert X Cringely book um, really stood out for me, um, which is uh, you know how the how the rulers of the world managed to become billionaires all without touching a girl or something like that. I can't remember what the, the, the title <laughs> they recorded. It was, it was a paragraph rather than a title. Um, but 
I guess as, as as time went on, it was really clear that like you know people needed uh, people to do technology and stuff, and you know the the, the city of London wasn't very um, very fulfilling. So I decided that uh, I would like to go and work in a less awful industry, and um, it leaves you with plenty of choice when you work in the city. And so I ended up working in advertising, which was marginally less awful, and the internet happened, and internet advertising happened, so essentially um started cutting stuff up there um and then i think fast forward to about 2001 and uh we decided to leave london because after 9 11 the temperature really really changed but i you know never, i've never really went to university or anything like that i went to see friends that were at university and um we wanted to move to edinburgh but we sort of settled on leeds because it was like half the way and uh, my other half got offered a job there uh, and all that kind of good stuff and ended up being a civil servant still really weirdly with a, a kind of focus on technology but a lot around the media and that sort of stuff. And then um, it was 2009, it was really, really clear that um, after the, you know, the financial crash, um, the, the last big financial crash, that uh, the civil service was going to really, really, you know, pare down. There probably wasn't going to be another Labour government where you know, the, you know, the, the sort of public sector was going to have any sort of gravy years. That's sort of borne out to be very true over this time. And... Um, decided to run my own business so went and formed a um i guess you'd probably call us a consultancy rather than a, a full agency but formed total um in 2010 which i think sort of where i met you guys and um mm-hmm. you know, like chitty and emma and all of, of those kind of people um still the same sort of um people that that you know we sort of associate myself with now um and then i guess probably the migrant crisis happened in 2015 um and by that time i was working with a couple of refugee and asylum agencies and um we work on recommendation so the more people we got recommended uh the more people that just happened to be in that industry and the same thing that i always saw in these offices were stacks of old laptops tablets phones and all of that kind of stuff just sat there and um for me i was like hang on this isn't very safe um you know people are getting these these machines given to them um because everyone turns out needs technology you know government stopped being a, a, a you know customer service government and started being an online government that was you know the, the digital yeah, default yeah. agenda which was you know i guess it was expedient but actually to, to be honest it was it was I think it was a, a way of, of disengaging a massive amount of people that were problems. Um, and it was the same with asylum seekers and refugees. A lot of these people came here with nothing um, and needed to get a foothold in this in this new country. The irony is, of course, is that they, you know, they, they came here using technology by and large. And people were using, you know, GPRS and, you know, maps to try and try and get you know, themselves across the across the Mediterranean or across the Sahara Desert or through one of the you know kind of European methods, um, got all the way here with technology and then had no provision for it when they got here, which just seemed perverse. And I didn't think it was sustainable seeing people donating um, machines on a very piecemeal basis, not cleaning them off properly, and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. the idea of solidarity was formed. Um, run the idea past a lot of people that I trusted and um, not one of them said that's a stupid idea and I thought it was the most stupid idea to you know kind of clean and um, refurbish machines and get them into the hands of the people that, that really needed them and had no other option but to you know kind of have a have a donation um, and everyone told me it was a, a wonderful idea and we ended up getting some lottery funding and forming an organization and we're away really. 
Oh. <laughs> and that was end of 2017, I think. Yeah. Well, inspirational story in many respects and just goes to show that, uh, you know, very often, uh, the, the in many respects, I think the, the best ideas are the simple ones. And, you know, <laughs> you, you see a need. Time. <laughs> yeah, you see a need, uh, you see a solution to that need and, and there you go. And yeah. um, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, for me, there's far too much... Um, disposal of technology that you know when it's lived its useful life as far as one person's concerned a lot of it you know we all know that this technology can be repurposed in various ways so that it can carry on working yeah but people people just have this tendency to throw things away because they think it's um you know they, they buy the manufacturer's uh, line really that that this thing isn't of no use to anybody anymore and and there it goes and, and so, also there's this this weird sort of hoardy thing that happens because people know that there is stuff on there that they don't want to lose. Yes. But they don't think it's worth transferring over, but they don't want anyone else to have it. Um yes. which I think is is I, I think that's a weird kind of late motif of capitalism. It's the it's the fact that, well, you know, I'll hoard it rather than give it away. You know, it's like land banking. Um, you know, supermarkets buy huge swathes of land and then only develop in some places because they just don't want Sainsbury's to have it or something yes. like that. It's, there's a lot of kind of weird motif stuff that goes on with that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, so I kind of think it's, you know, it, 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 what we're trying to do is is do something that's really, really simple, just get stuff into the hands of people that need it. But... The strange thing is I always get a lot of um, people coming from it from, from different points of view. Um, and they, they sort of, you know, graft what they their, their set of beliefs are on it. And I mean, you know, um, we get people coming from it from the, you know, the very kind of, you know, refugee welcome point of view, you know, sort of, I guess, worthy liberal sort of point of view, which is, is great. I mean, I share a lot of those people's beliefs, so it's fine. Um, but then you get people coming in from the environmental point of view. And I'm, I'm not the world's best environmentalist. I, you know, I drive horrendously large engined cars quite quickly. Um, I, you know, I, I don't cycle. You know, the, my, my, uh, my bike has been in the shed for, God, best part of a decade. You know what I mean? It, was, it probably hasn't got a single thing right with it. Um, but, you know, there is an environmental point to all of this. And the environmental point is that, that the extraction of the minerals that, that take to make batteries and chips and all of that kind of stuff is awful i mean it's you know it's mad you know you're looking at the stuff that that's happening and a lot of the time it's um you know countries in central africa that have you know absolutely kind of awful poverty indicators and all of that and their environment indicators are being absolutely ruined off the basis of you know huge mines there for you know lithium-ion battery production and that kind of stuff it's it's, it's it's just mad i mean yeah people people tend to graft a lot of um what they see as their standpoint on, on this, um, on Solidarity, and which is fine because, you know, that, that's good. You know, I don't want things to come from a really homogenised level of, of, of motivations. I think, you know, the interesting thing is when we started working with people with Solidarity, um, you know, in the last year we sort of set up something called Open Tech Makerspace, which was really a, a case to not only give people access to technology, but to stop kind of handing them it as a, as a donation you know it was really yes. to help people build the tech that they want and you know kind of share those resources and skills and so from that point of view it was it was lovely to see people 
building the things they were needing, but also, you know, making the decisions. You know, when you get something donated, I'll be honest with you, maybe 40% of the time it's chaff. There's, you know, 60% yeah. is a pretty good rate, but what happens with all the chaff? You know, there's there's machines that have broken keyboards, machines that have broken power sockets, failing hard drive, anything that could possibly do it, a broken screen. So uh, we've kind of brought Open Tech Makerspace together to help people start, um, I don't know, kind of repurposing stuff, but also building stuff to order for use you know it's like uh yeah it, it's great having an off the peg suit but if you have an off the peg suit from a place that's just sold the same suit for however long in a day you all look like communist china wearing the same sort of uniform you know uh and, and people really you know there's nothing I, i'm a big fan of the um you know nothing about us without us sort of approach on things and yeah over the last six months it's it's Absolutely crazy. I mean, uh, I think we started off in the first year doing maybe like sort of 20, 30 donations out to people. Uh-huh. And then the year after, we've done like 120 out. We've absolutely blown everything out of the water. We've supported people um, starting their own business who are refugees. And we've you know provided a Sudanese association community school with a suite of computers. We've helped um, sanctuary scholars at, at university who are given a free scholarship but are they're not given any any technology to, to complete that with, you know, so they're like 20 minutes at 10 to 8 in the morning on a on a, on a you know, machine in the, in, in, the, in the computer lab that might not sometimes open until quarter to eight or something like that. So, you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of, it's just so much, so many gaps in the provision for people. And, you know, there's a sort of the truism that the market always finds an answer. Um, I think the last 10 years, um, if not, the last six months has, has done a massive amount to, to disprove that kind of lazy truism, really, because yeah. the market finds a way to exploit people or exploit a situation. It doesn't find a way to cater for everyone and to provide for everyone. And to, yeah. to have an idea that the market is some sort of beneficent kind of, um, you know, overbearing good is, I think, kind of almost like kind of willfully negligent. Um, and I think it's just incredibly weak intellectual like kind of i guess outsourcing you know it's like (laughs) i've come up with this sort of like neat sounding truism i'm just going to keep on banging on with it forever and a day which i you know i think is is symptomatic of of where we are now as a country in a lot of ways yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely yeah and i think from a from a refugee point of view it's you know as you've already identified these people are coming across who have already got these skills and this knowledge and who are using them in their original countries and um, but come here without any kind of resources to translate that into in, into a useful skill here. And Absolutely, yeah. that, that's a gap you're filling. Hey, well, I, I, what I'm trying to do is sort of create space for that gap to fill itself. I mean, there's a certain amount of of what I do being about gardening, really. It's just creating a nice mm. enough environment, you know, nourishing enough soil, decent enough sunlight, and fairly plentiful water, and something's going to happen. Um, and that's that's the, the the sort of approach that I generally try and take to things. But I mean, to, to go back to the skills thing, I mean, um, the people that have come to us, and I'm, you know, these are all people in Bradford as well. So you know, West Yorkshire as as a as a, as a, as a region, I guess, as a sub region, I think you probably call it, um, has a huge amount of talent. And people that are only really able to access Solidaritex stuff on the ground. Um, are people from Bradford and we have people come over from Halifax maybe occasionally from Leeds and that kind of stuff but um, yeah I think the ambition now is to to sort of take it wider and, and kind of throw that out a little bit more I think we spent these last couple of years doing something 
there's a proof of concept, minimum viable product, that kind of thing. Um, and I think where we go from now will be the interesting put, you know, kind of way of doing things because how do you connect something up that's very much an improvisational thing from one end? It's like, um, I mean, I guess you probably liken it to musicians collaborating over the internet, which does happen now, but it sounded crazy a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, it is very weird from that point of view. But I, I think, I think we've got something and that's the, the, the nice thing about it because um, I've worked for organizations before where we've had a great idea and then the direction of travel's changed and all of that kind of stuff. You know, I worked for tech startups back in the day whose who's, on paper their idea sounded absolutely fantastic, but then someone comes along who's bigger and better and does a little bit of it, but does so much more and then you're, you're obsolete all of a sudden. So Exactly, exactly, I, yeah. This is the I only suppose... aspect I want to be obsolete in, though. Do you know what I mean? That, that's <laughs> the thing. And to be honest, the last six months I felt massively obsolete because – you know, people, it's what people say that, oh, you're good with technology. Really, I'm not. I'm, I have palpitations when I open up a computer. If I look at the spec of a, of, of a machine, generally speaking, I'll, I'll kind of make a value judgment on it and then I'll just blank over. You know, I don't really care about, you know, mm. you know I, I don't know what two gigabytes of RAM versus two and a half gigabytes of RAM is the difference, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. you. So it, it, it's all a little bit, I mean, you know, I've never been the, the most technically minded on this. And to actually have people, you know, rock up, totally unassuming, totally, you know, barely speaking English in some cases, but able to communicate and to then sit there and just to be able to diagnose every problem, find every solution and, you know, actually in a rights protected way. Because one of the, the hamstrings that we have as an organization is that we, we try and not infringe anyone's copyright and all of that kind of stuff, you know, because, yeah. which is hard because, you know, whole ecosystems, not, not pointing fingers at windows here but i am pointing fingers at windows whole ecosystems <laughs> spring up around you know kind of necessary kind of updates and all of that kind of stuff i mean i'm sat on an apple computer using iphone headphones and, and sort of browsing my ipad idly while we speak so yes yeah. i i realize that um everyone's ecosystem is is about you know <laughs> a certain amount of walled garden in it mm-hmm. so yeah i mean i i think from from um from the point of view of what we're doing, it's 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 weird because it feels like it should be revolutionary or it feels like it should be kind of um, innovating. But actually, a lot of the time, what we're doing is just creating the, the I guess, creating the, the kind of environment for things to thrive in. And that's weird. That's a kind of a, a seeding of control over things as well, which, you know, yeah. I think anyone who works with technology and has a passion for working with technology is to a greater or lesser extent a control freak. You know, <laughs> look at Facebook for God's sake. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I suppose what you're doing really is, you know, the way the way I characterise a lot of what I do, and I think you're probably a slightly more technically proficient person than I am, is that the, the one thing that I have that other people don't have is that if something doesn't work the first time, I will play with it yes. until it does work. I, I won't just sit back and say no, it doesn't work. Yeah. Which a lot of people, a lot of people are. If it doesn't do the thing that they wanted to do the first time. Um, that's it as far as they're concerned. Whereas I would say, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is the most frustrating thing in the world. It's, you know, like, cause I've got a kid and stuff and if she tells me something's broken and, and my, always my response is, why is it broken? And, she, and her always response is, um, cause it's not working. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, but let's work out why it's not working sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, she's, she's off that bed now though. So it's, it, it's fine, but yeah, it's, I think it's, it's a, a passive versus an active state thing, isn't it? 
Yeah. yeah you yeah. need to understand why it's not working. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think one of the things that's really humbling about the whole technology thing is it's quite similar to, um, you know, Buddhism in that sort of way. You know, a wise man knows that he knows nothing sort of thing. It's, <laughs> you know, what, what someone might know about, you know, electrical circuits and printed circuit boards you know, is is different from what someone might know about podcasting or making a website or anything like that. And yeah. I don't know. I think one of the nice things about technology is that um, there's no way you can know everything. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The more you, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Exactly. <laughs> but then again, there are days when I do coding and I record video and then I set up a channel and then I you know, debug a website and all of those things, and I might end up the day doing some illustration and I'm kind of like. When did I learn all of these things? I didn't learn any of these things at school, any of them at all. Do you know what I mean? To quote madness, the only thing I learned at school was how to bend, not break the rules. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's why what education should probably be about is enabling people to have flexible, transferable skills rather than learning facts. Yeah, it's critical faculties and, you know, kind of... I mean, that's the thing I always think that education kind of lacks for me um, is, is why. You know, there's never any why. There's always a because this happened. You know, there's it's you know it's all empirical evidence, book learning, all of that kind of stuff. But you know, why are we doing this? This is one of those things. You know, and to be honest, I would have loved to have learned more about maths. I'm a complete humanities head. That's the thing. People always think that you're science and technology and all of that sort of stuff. You know, I want to read books about kind of you know or watch TV programs actually about kind of the the history of why things happened and all of that kind of stuff. I don't really want to know what happened. I want to know why those things happened because yeah. what happens is just a result of, of, of why um, and yeah. why is always the question that needs to be answered first for me yeah exactly which sort of in a, in a roundabout way brings us to uh, the current situation with yeah. the, the coronavirus and and the fact that all sorts of things have happened as a result of this crisis that people have been telling us for years couldn't happen mm. you know as you say people have sort of they've crossed the barrier now and they've started to do things because they've been forced to do it, which they've been telling us for years and years they couldn't do, yes. you know, like video conferencing and, and working from home and all those kind of things, which everybody has said couldn't be done. And from my point of view, uh, you know, the thing that I'd believe for a long time is that people who say it can't be done those with a vested interest in how it was done before, yes. you know, and, you know, why do we need all these big office blocks in town centres now? because why would you go to somewhere like that, particularly as it means you sit across someone who might be sneezing and coughing? Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we've all, li- we've all lived with those, aren't we? You know? <laughs> we've shared an office with someone who you know has coughed on you. <laughs> an inconsiderate cougher and all of that. Yeah, no, it, and it is true. And, you know, I think it's, it's a very real situation. I know I've worked in buildings that had sick building syndrome, you know. I actually spent a little bit of time in my career odyssey working for um heating ventilation and air conditioning companies and um the really interesting thing about those those guys was that you know kind of a lot of their job was about actually keeping the building not pumping crap around it all the time um but there's always a cost implication in that it's like um it's like on airplanes um you never used to get ill on airplanes when people smoked and it wasn't because cigarette smoke was necessarily healthy quite the opposite but it was because they exchanged the air at a greater rate and filtered it in the airplanes back then but obviously you know that takes up fuel and fuel is costly even at subsidized um you know national flag carrier aircraft rates it's still costly um so you know they don't do that hence everyone gets sicker and i guess i mean i'm not you know i'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist or anything i guess that's probably contributed towards the spread of coronavirus now 
Mm. You know, so um, I think what's really interesting about now is not so much that that people are doing things that are expedient, but what is actually expedient. You know, those things that would have been verboten, those things that would have been, um, you know, a couple of years ago would, would have been seen as 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 rank. You know, kind of oh, social and gone mad and all of these sort of things are now you know parroted quite simply in government policy, even if they want to wean you off of these uh, you know addiction to the dangerous um, furlough payments. No yes. one's addi- no one's addicted to getting eighty percent of their salary. Let me tell you that. One hundred and twenty percent that would be addictive. Eighty percent less so. Uh, <laughs> if anyone's got a twenty percent um, buffer zone in their salary, they're in you know the top one percent. Let's be honest. Yeah, because everyone's struggling out there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, from your own point of view, I mean, what what do you think is what has changed? What you do, or has anything changed? Um, well, the weird thing is, I guess, is is in a very real sense, it, the the stuff that we did about people coming together. I mean, my my chair, John Beach, who is you know remains a intellectual and spiritual insp- inspiration to me. Um, he, he said that the great thing about Solidaritech when he came along to, to see what we were doing with Open, Open Tech Makerspace, which is a really long title, um, was that it was a conspiracy of kindness, that we were just, you know, we were there to help people and to do good things and you could feel it. And that was absolutely lovely. And I think one of the big things for me um, is the the coronavirus stuff meant that we couldn't do that anymore? We haven't been able to open Open Tech Makerspace. It's ironically sure. named in the end um, since since before the lockdown, really, because we knew that it was coming and we knew that it wasn't safe. That people were coming and people were spending a little bit of time there. But it, but you know, we are we're in a church in the middle of Bradford, in you know, in a proper hood in Bradford, you know, like a, a proper ghetto. Which, and I say that coming from somewhere myself that people won't go to, um, and it is. Is one of those places that was so community focused and now we can't open up and do any of that because we're based in a church yeah. and they were like well we're closing worship for a start we might open it for soup kitchens or to help people that are really in dire straits physically so the last thing we want is a bunch of nerds you know kind of making everything more complicated than we necessarily need before which is totally understandable but it's kind of put a real pin in our balloon as far as being able to help people goes um and obviously, people aren't able to donate to us anymore. So, you know, we had this thing where on Friday, people would bring the donations down and they could come up and, you know, sit with everyone and kind of be part of everything um, and, you know, enjoy the, the environment that their stuff was doing. It's, it's a confidence thing. You know, people want to know and want to be able to see what their what their donation is doing, the good it's doing, the type of people it's helping, the type of people that were, you know, competently wiping all of these machines as opposed to 18 months before where it was just some guys are getting really really frustrated with stuff and why wouldn't this d-band run on this and that sort of thing so yeah it's utterly stopped us in our tracks doing what we were doing but um it has opened up massive different parts of things that we'd never considered like um weirdly enough we've we've just we've completed the training to be a um reseller of mobile data on a pay-as-you-go basis which we didn't ask to do we were asked to do that by a a local authority in yorkshire that that has a massive amount of asylum seekers and refugees that are in the worst place imaginable you know they're in in a a sort of pre-dispersal accommodation housing they're sharing dormitories where there's families or young women with men with mental health problems post-traumatic stress disorder people have you know fled war-torn countries because they were trying to be you know press ganged into being child soldiers 
there are a million sub stories there, but the point is, is that all of these people need some sort of connectivity. Yet again, not provided it. Um, so we we found out a way to essentially do a plug and play data SIM card, um, which should work in phones. We I've tested it in a couple of phones and works straight off the bat. I had three test cards. And two of them work straight off the bat. The other one is stuck in the phone because it's the SIM card tray is so badly designed. But that's what you get. Um, so that, we're about to launch that this week. So if people need data for any vulnerable people, they can buy it at a rock bottom rate, pay as you go basis, top it up when they need to. And we also can, if we want, control what they're looking at. So we can make things... If someone, for instance, has you know kind of got a kid that needs school um, access to do their homework, and many, many, many people in this this region and all over the country are struggling to, to get access to do work in terms of machines or connectivity, we can control what they are able to look at, so they won't rinse their data. If you know, <laughs> if they spend all day on YouTube, for instance, they won't absolutely rinse their data. Or if if you know someone else can log on to their MyFi, if they've got a like little brother or sister that's going to rinse all their data from them, um, they can actually safeguard that and all of those things. So yeah, weirdly, we've we've become a, a a reseller of, of of data and connectivity for people which is uh, mm. wouldn't have seen that coming two weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> which is strange but it's all grist to the mill as you say it's always you know th- that's the thing i don't really view technology as a, an, an end in itself it's a means to an end it's the ability to do what you want to do you know it's the yeah. it's the typewriter that you can write the the next great novel on it's the you know the kind of um terminal that you could code an amazing new app on it's any of these things you want to do and it might just be something that you want a nice quiet office job on you know that that's fine there's no no problem with nice quiet office jobs in my mind although i can't think of the last time i did one <laughs> okay so i mean uh, you know as you know i've been involved in various attempts to get something off the ground um yeah. with similarities to, to solidarity tech um you know what do you think are the lessons that you've learned from, from what you're doing in, in terms of scaling up i suppose is what i'm saying it can, could it be scaled up yeah i mean that that's the thing that that's where i've been concentrating on for I guess the last sort of year really is, is how sure. do we, you know, the, the core of it's, it's viable, but how do we bolt on other bits that are also viable? You know, if we bolt on too many bits that aren't viable, that are drag, then, then they'll fall apart. I mean, I think the thing, the thing I always struggle with in terms of, you know, lessons learned and, and all of those sort of approaches are for me, it's control. I'm, I want to yeah. be able to seed control, but I liken it to a kid learning to ride, you know, as a, as a parent, I, you know, knackered my back running behind my daughter trying to help her kind of ride a bike. And then at one point she just saw a hill that she liked to look to go down and just went down it with no stabilizers on and really enjoyed it. And that was it, you know. Yeah. So it's the get, reaching that sort of event horizon where it's, well, it's too late. You can't catch them now. They're going down that hill. That's yeah. the, that's where you want to be. I mean, for, for me, I, I think um, the limitations that, would, that we found quite a lot are that um, – that we are for a very specific um, like audience, yeah, and and that is that's either going to turn you on or turn you off as someone yeah. to donate to us. Um, and people always say, well, why asylum seekers and refugees? And my point is, is that that it, 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 they almost match the idea of solidarity. Is that the idea of solidarity is to take a underutilized resource and 
specifically like kind of try and work with that resource and it's the same with asylum seekers and refugees because the the media depicts them as as you know sort of parasitical hordes of people coming over here and you know all of that kind of crazy rhetoric that that we weirdly see as ramped up massively um and for me i looked at it the other way i looked at it as a as an underutilized resource as well is that these people were skilled compassionate um you know in, in many cases they're professionals you don't you don't get to get on one of those boats across the mediterranean without five grand and i don't know about you but i can't lay my hands on five grand right now it's very rare that i can um sure. you know I, unless unless you are um the wealthiest of, of a society i think you're going to struggle to lay your hands on that much ready cash i might be able to put it on a credit card but i'll probably get a call from barclays going why have you why have you, why have you paid these people tra- traffickers five grand to get across the, you know it, it, that sort of stuff is is real so um for me it's a totally underutilized resource these people are doctors architects civil engineers professors you know like um if we look at our regular volunteers in Solidaritec, and and i don't want to talk about them as people or names or anything like that but we the people we have at Solidaritec are a guy who has grown up in a tv computer console repair shop so he's repaired every generation of mobile phones he's 30 now and he's got 30 right. years experience which is just right. mental you know he's holding a screwdriver before he was holding a pen he's, he's, he's a genius and <laughs> if i can do anything in my power to to get that guy looked after and you know he's 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 from sudan so he's not you know he's not even one of the more sort of nicely developed countries they've got huge problems over there but he looks after his own community um he he advocates for them um he uh, you know he, he he has sort of all sorts of, of of kind of humanitarian things but also he's fiercely fiercely intelligent another guy there is who you know, grew up in sort of tv mobile repair shops in in iran um you know which has its own own issues and you know he's he's fled over here too then we've got other people that have, have come across that were you know kind of um astrophysicists nuclear chemists all of these people then these guys could at the very least go and run a, a working shop in in a another high street of this country and yeah. some of these guys could go off and be you know professors and you know kind of you know, well thought of people that would would earn you know vast excesses of, of what you or i could possibly earn mm-hmm. and you know for much more complicated subjects so yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's undertapped resources i always think and that's that's the thing that i've I, I imagined, but you have a hypothesis, and then you want to test it, you know. And so, you know, the, the the thesis so far is that we're really, really, really not taking advantage of these people. Um, and whilst we are having them here, hosting them here, we are precluding them from working, which is is one thing that's absolutely crazy. But actually, just precluding them from taking any part in society by literally keeping them on subsistence money you know that they just live in suspended animation i mean yeah. I, I think the thing is we've looked we, we've noticed over these last couple of months is that no one works well in not being able to go out no one works well you know we're just seeing the same four walls all the time no one works out worrying about money all the time it's bad you know it's bad for people's mental health and physical health but the hypothesis that we were massively missing out on what could be a hugely productive part of our society um you know, I think that's that's been tested and has come back as, as true. I think we are. Um, 
So where this grows from here, I, I don't know. But for, for me, I think that we what we try and do is find out a way of of capitalising on this whilst not exploiting it. So, yeah. you know, and that's always the balance that everyone tries to strike. I mean, it's the balance that capitalism should be trying to strike against social democracy and to try and get a society that is economically productive, but also looks after people. And I think we've failed to find that balance quite a lot over the last 10 years. And I think, you know, the Warren Buffett quote where, you know, when the tide goes out, you discover who's not wearing underwear. Is really, you know, a lot of us have been caught swimming commando. <laughs> you know, so for, for me, you know, I, th- I think the main thing is, is that we work out a way to do this on a better scale, on a bigger scale, and we work out a way to keep everyone looked after as, as much as we can because, you know, the, the, the weird thing that people don't really know about asylum seekers and refugees, they, they kind of use them as interchangeable terms, but someone who's seeking asylum is asking for the right to stay here and cannot work. Someone who has received asylum is expected to go out and find a job in six weeks or then you're in trouble um, because you've, you've not paid up your credits or however you want to you look at it. So they're two distinct different problems, but I don't think precluding asylum seekers from working gives them any chance and gives us any chance as a country to gauge how useful they might be as a member of society. Because if you put everyone into very passive roles, you're never going to get a feed of that back. And one of the things that was really weird for me when I, I, I left London and moved up north, um, I had a job when I moved up north and it was absolutely fine. And then um, I didn't like my job and I decided to look for another job and I was advised to go to the job centre. Um, and when I was, uh, I mean, job centres are, you know, very different things than they were then, I guess. But yeah. I worked, I was a traffic manager in London, which meant that I cut people's internet traffic up in sites and kind of assessed how they were and built them into channels that we could sell advertising on. Long and boring explanation. Um, they saw that on my CV and sent me to, I think it was Wakefield Council for an interview yeah. about traffic management, about like... Yeah. Red lights, green lights, traffic lights, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I'm, I'm amazed that you want a traffic manager here. And they're like, yeah, I know. Uh, like, you're not into roads and, and no, not at all, do you know? But that idea about the people that are supposed to be finding the best way for people to contribute to society, not really understanding the subject matter is... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's be honest. I mean, technology is full of people that are well-meaningly trying to interpret the, the subject matter. Uh, and getting it woefully wrong, should we say? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I think uh, thank you very much for doing this, Ben. Uh, it's, it's been really, really good. It's been really good insight into what you do and why you do it. Um, mm. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that, that you haven't really said as, as part of this discussion? Um, obviously, if you, you know, if if, if you like the the sound of my nonsense for the the, the past um, 40 minutes or whatever it's been and um, look us up donate to us you know give us some technology we'll put it into good hands um if you don't like the whole refugee and asylum seeker thing and that's fine um then you can always give uh, machines to someone like digital action west yorkshire who are um doing the same but for school kids who haven't got any access to digital technology um you might end up donating to asylum seekers and refugees that way too but you know it's it's more for the greater good of children rather than um, other people but no the main thing the main thing i want people to take away from this is that 
that unused technology that you know that, that laptop that is perfectly serviceable for people that have, that has just gathered dust or you've used as a bookstop for the you know however many years get that into someone's hands there are people that could do some good with that you know there are people that could you know start to live their life there or you know complete their degree studies and go off and do something wonderful in this country so do it donate and you know kind of yeah. um give people a chance i think that would be the main thing it doesn't have to be to us but it has to be to someone because yeah. if it's just sat on a shelf it's gathering dust and it's no use to anyone okay well oh. thank you very much thank you very much for your time ben no problem. Um, and uh you know uh, and, and i would echo what you said um you know i think what you're doing is fantastic and um you know please anybody out there who was who's got some spare tech then please don't just put it in a drawer please give it another life. Mm -hmm. There are people who can make use of it. Totally.